nothing we can do is going to prevent every harm in the world. And I can't promise to you that if we do this thing, that it's going to solve all of our issues. But what I do know is that like what we're doing right now isn't working. And like right. what we're do- <laughs> like, and that policing for sure is not working, right? That PD and ICE and all of this is not helping people. It causes more violence. And that's enough reason to get rid of it. That's enough reason to not do some of these things. Welcome to the Death Panel. Today, we are joined by a friend of the show and one of my favorite people, Evie Nguyen. Eve's Tong Nguyen is an abolitionist organizer and cultural worker with Red Canary Song and Survived and Punished. And we have them here today to talk about the political context that's emerging in the aftermath of the recent mass murder of massage workers in Atlanta. Evie, thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you on the show, despite the fact that the circumstances are not fun, but when is life ever fun? Right. (laughs) So last week, eight people were shot in two Atlanta massage businesses by a 20-something-year-old white man. The police have said up and down that this was not a racially motivated killing. The line that they've used is that the women that were killed were a, quote, outlet. There have been calls for increased policing, debates over sex workers' rights, and in this sort of like politics of processing, there is a lot of erasure of the workers themselves and few proposals that are actually being floated that actually center the voices of the community and people who the state is being called to be held accountable for increasing protection. So first, before we get into sort of how these harmful framings rely on some very powerful racist, ableist, and xenophobic assumptions, we have a lot of listeners who are not in the U.S. and might not have the nuance of what's happened. And even if they are in the U.S., the news has been, to put it lightly, a bit of a mess. The context is kind of muddled by a lot of different organizations and a lot of different actors who have discrete interests. So, Eves, could you briefly walk us through, from your perspective, organizing for sex workers' rights, decrim, and migrant justice, what happened in Atlanta last week and what is sort of going on now? Right. So in Atlanta, um, they weren't the only people killed, but six people who were killed were Asian women who worked in massage businesses. And partially this happened because of them working in massage businesses and the sort of preconceived notions and assumptions that are made about massage businesses and what kind of work they do, which is a really longstanding racialized and gendered assumption and stereotype that massage workers are also sex workers, which I do have to say that some of them are. Some people who work in massage businesses do sell sex. Some of them identify as sex workers and some of them don't. And there's a lot of opacity around it for a lot of reasons, um, because there's a lot of shame around sex work, around selling sex, that even in any particular massage business, someone might not tell their coworker, someone else who also works in the massage business, whether or not they sell sex or what kind of extras they might provide, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a really complicated issue that does have 
something to do with a lot of racialized and gendered stereotypes, which makes it more difficult because you're hearing a lot of different things from people about how, oh, we shouldn't connect it to sex work or we shouldn't talk about um, gender or like it's only about race, which we know that all of those things are intimately connected. (laughs) That the violence is entirely intersectional and you couldn't possibly untangle all of these things. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, we have to talk about sex work because partially the reason why it happened is because sex work is criminalized, because sex work is stigmatized, and there's like an extreme hatred for sex workers and whorephobia. And we keep saying this, but the person who killed them, this white man, even if they never sold sex or they didn't identify as a sex worker because sex worker is a political term, he certainly thought they did and is carrying that with them. And also it's very classic of the police to say that it's not racially motivated or to cut out certain parts of how intersectional the issue actually is, which is why intersectionality even exists. It's that the courts and like the criminal legal system fails to see all of these parts and continuously fails specifically black women and women of color. Right, exactly. And and what we're what we're seeing now is obviously outrage at what is very tangible racialized violence. But so much of that is being mobilized to push for laws and protections that will not protect the people who are actually being named as being vulnerable, which is the people who work in massage parlors. So sorry, massage businesses. I hate the like phrasing that you hear in the media of like the massage parlor, parlor. which is such a stereotype. Yeah. Nineteenth like, century. Yeah. It's like barber. Yeah, whatever. So can you explain briefly what Red Canary Song is and where you guys are coming from as an organization, the work that you do, because I think this sort of informs where you're coming from when we're talking about advocating for things that uh, do not increase policing, trying to interrogate proposals for any carceral connections, because ultimately, like a lot of the laws that are being proposed um, will result in more harm, more violence, more surveillance and more policing of these workers. Yeah, Absolutely. So Red Canary Song is a grassroots collective of Asian and migrant sex workers and massage workers. Um, And we organize around supporting massage workers and migrant workers in Flushing, Queens, as well as advocating for the decriminalization of sex work, which um, in what you're talking about, we don't believe that you can have decriminalization of sex work without abolition of the PIC, so the prison industrial complex, right? Because any type of criminalization at all means, it just means that you're going to criminalize people. If the police exist, they will police people. And even if they aren't going to police people for prostitution in big air quotations, right? Or for selling sex, they're still going to police sex workers or they're still going to police certain communities because they can. And we already see that, right? A lot of raids that happen in Flushing actually are not, people are not being charged with prostitution anymore. They're being charged with licensure laws. They're saying, oh, you're practicing massage without a license. (laughs) 
Um, so they really will find any reason to police the communities that they want to police, which we know are like mainly black, Latinx, indigenous and other people of color, especially those who work in underground or informal economies like selling drugs, like selling sex. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that I think has been really absent from this conversation is actually what increased policing does do to the workers. You mentioned raids and um, Red Canary Song is organizing mostly in Queens. And there has been a long history of police violence and abuse of the workers who who work in massage businesses. And this is not obviously unique to Queens or any state. But but, you know, there's been this long struggle in New York over like, do we uh, protect communities by building more safe, humane jails? Do we uh, change the bail laws? But ultimately, like, even with any bail reform that's passed, people are still being charged. You've seen Andrew Cuomo, you know, not give vaccines or any leniency or release anyone from jail or prison in New York. Basically, you know, this is the this is the context that already exists. And so when people are saying that the way to respond to this sort of perceived wave of increased racialized violence against Asian Americans, which because this is very much billed in the media as a crime wave. And that has sort of specific historical implications, right? Like the reality of where you guys are organizing right now in Queens is like incredibly violent, dangerous and surveilled. And the violence is really perpetuated by the police who, who are sort of constantly antagonizing these communities and making them actively unsafe. So the thought of adding additional police protection is, you know, absolutely tantamount to, I think, fueling the fire at this point and creating more harm and more violence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the police are never going to keep anybody safe, or at least like in our case, like anybody that we're concerned with, but also that largely... Right. When we're talking about the police and we're talking about their history with massage businesses and with Queens, we can't talk about it really without talking about how Red Canary came to exist. We came to exist after the death of Song Yong, and she was exploited by the NYPD, died at the hands of the NYPD, was killed because of criminalization, was asked to comply with the NYPD, didn't and was further criminalized for it. That's the way that they do things, right? In order to to them to root out crime, <laughs> right? But are actually just like hurting communities. And then even more than that, when we look at it larger, when we're looking at all of these like parts of carcerality and policing, it doesn't help our communities and doesn't keep people safe as far as we're concerned specifically around massage workers, around migrants. when. Immigrants are criminalized in the U.S., especially if they're undocumented. Massage workers are criminalized and for their connection to sex work, for any number of things. Specifically, a lot of the people who work in massage businesses are criminalized because they're Asian migrant women. Mm-hmm. You can't really like take that out. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, the police doesn't keep anybody safe. That's just not necessarily true. I think that the police will keep some people safe, right? <laughs> particularly privileged people, right. particularly like white people. Right. And their property. Yeah. And their property, which like this does come into play because when we talk about the community, right? Because I feel like really quickly people want to 
simplify it and just be like, oh, the police aren't a part of the community, which is true that like a lot of people don't police in the communities that they live in. Right. But the NYPD is also community directed. The people in Flushing call the cops on massage businesses. They call the cops on street workers. They call the cops on black people. This is also partially community directed. And we also see people in the community, right? Like in, if we're going to talk about the way that people are expanding the police, right? The city council is trying to like push for police reform right now and like more money to go to the policing. Margaret Chin is a part of the community. She used to be an organizer. Right. And, you know, all of these other people who are also in the community, they might be landlords and they might be all of these other things, right? But they also call for all of this. And I think it's really important to kind of talk about that in the scheme of people calling for policing, because it's not just people who are like, don't understand, don't understand how this could possibly harm people. It's that they also benefit from it. Right. No, exactly. I think that's a part of the conversation. But people who call for policing entirely like miss why this happened. Because in specifically with Atlanta, which is partially why I think that it's really big in the media on top of the fact that they're pushing for this idea of a crime wave, which is entirely, I believe, to be playing into state rhetoric and like language Mm -hmm. in order to paint that there's a crime wave. So we need more police, which I think, you know, there has always been anti-Asian violence and specifically talking about massage workers and what happened in Georgia, massage workers are subjected to violence on a near daily basis. And they especially have been during COVID-19 and not just because of like some president's very bad rhetoric around it, (laughs) right? Like people were already racist. People already like had these sentiments and were waiting for the opportunity to be like, oh, look, like Asians are diseased. Asian sex workers in particular are diseased Mm -hmm. and to push all of this. So when we talk about it, I don't think that you can really talk about it so simply. And when we're looking at it, people aren't really getting to the roots of the issue. Um, But people want to talk about this particular instance of violence towards massage workers because it didn't come from the police, because it came from this white supremacist, you know, so then they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, see, we need more policing. There's a hate crime wave. The police are right. a hate crime. They commit hate crimes if you want to call it that, <laughs> right. right? Absolutely. Like they right. are violence. Not that I would use that language, right? Because I also think that hate crimes play into this carceral language and that call for more police because they say, oh yeah, like look at these crimes and all of this language that we use. But if you're going to talk about it in that way, the police are also violent. They constantly are like doing anti-Asian violence. They did. They do exactly what that white supremacist did in massage businesses all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and historically, I feel like it's so important also to recognize the degree to which so much violence in particular has been done explicitly by the state. I mean, it wasn't until like 19, the like early 1940s when they changed the uh, eligibility for uh, naturalization or immigration to anything but, uh, quote, descendants of races indigenous to the Western Hemisphere. Um, (laughs) And, you know, classically, one of our kind of favorite longtime uh, big pieces of racist legislation that we on this show like to make fun of is like the Chinese Exclusion Act. But but even prior to that, the like the Page Act Mm -hmm. in the mid late 19th century was basically people have talked about it as a as it like kind of blanket excluded uh, Asian women in particular from uh, immigrating or like coming to the United States at all. But really what it was, was that 
Asian women coming to the United States had to literally prove somehow that they were not prostitutes. Yeah. Um, uh, using the terminology, at least of like what, what was used around the around this bill. Um, yeah, there's there's so many um, histories of the way that the United States has set up its immigration laws and policing laws and labor laws. And it's really interesting to to think about the context of this as you were saying, Evie, like the way that hate crime laws are actually used, like a hate crime is a is a cultural concept and then it's a specific legal and judicial definition, right? Yeah. And so the way that hate crime laws are often used, ultimately what they do is they give funding to the police because with hate crime laws, there needs to be task force developed. You know, the police love to build up this infrastructure. There is the sort of judicial infrastructure needed. And it also gives legitimacy to the police. Right, because internally they'll like speak about them as PR opportunities, unfortunately. Yeah, and and the way that we talk about, you know, if we're saying that like a quote-unquote hate crime law and hate crime enforcement is what's needed to keep communities safe, then that's also saying, you know, ideologically speaking, it's trying to put up this framing and the structure that police are who keep people safe, which is, again, this thing that we've been critiquing. So maybe we could get into sort of like, you know, there's there's obviously the the situation that's happened. And then there's the way that it's talked about and in the way that it's talked about and in the way that it becomes the sort of cultural object for a discussion on racialized violence in the United States. There's so much that goes on and there's so much advocacy that's sort of coming head to head. And so you have some people who are working on behalf of the actual community of workers of massage workers, of sex workers, people who are working on migrant justice. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum who are like very puritanical and they are coming for trying to eliminate this industry in order to try and, you know, eliminate the quote unquote problem or violence. And it's very paternalistic. And so you sort of have this big conversation about a very real problem of racialized violence. But the the proposals of what to you know what's to be done and the conversation of what's to be done is ultimately just really um, framed in this sort of paternalistic way of like people don't know how to keep themselves safe they don't know any better etc. So in talking about it, I always want to uplift the work of other people. And when we're talking about the conversation about hate crimes, right? I have to like uplift the work of Dylan Rodriguez, like Kay Whitlock, mm-hmm. who really talk about why we shouldn't use this language, why we shouldn't use the state's language to define what happens to us, right? And I partially touched on this a little bit as well, but like you're giving them a lot of legitimacy when you're like, oh, we have to define it as a hate crime. We want the government to define it as a hate crime. Why do we want the government who constantly, who a lot of people know at this point, right, are enactors of white supremacist violence, of violence onto like black indigenous people of color communities and any like criminalized community, why do we want legitimacy from them to explain what happens to us? They're not going to give it to us. They're never going to give it to us in the way that we want either, right? The only reason they want to define certain things as hate crimes is because it's to their benefit to increase policing, right? Or to define it as certain things, which when we get into the conversation around paternalistic rescue complex, right, they (laughs) define like certain things as trafficking because it benefits them to increase policing. But in talking about it as well, you kind of have to look at what they're doing with the language and you know, when we do all of these hashtags and we're like, oh, yes, like we have to talk about it, we have to document it and we have to do all of these things. 
I was um, listening to a lecture by Tamara Cade Nupper the other night, and she really hits it home in talking about like how a lot of the documentation that we do and using these hashtags and really pushing the idea that there's an increased crime wave that we're doing the work of the state, that we're supporting the state in that, right? And I understand the impulse for people to do this, but whenever we talk about hate crimes, whenever we talk about terrorism or anything like that, it's just giving them more legitimacy to cause more violence in our communities because they're going to turn it around and be like, yeah, this is a reason to police more people. Right. Right. Exactly. And and there's been great demand in the media lately for people to uh, comment on the quote unquote like massage industry. And so many of these people have taken up, um, they're coming from the sort of anti-trafficking space, which basically I, I think a lot of these organizations are very, uh, a lot of them tend to be religious and they sort of use this idea of like, well, um, people who work in this industry like either don't know any better or they're exploited or they don't even realize they're exploited. And what we really need to do is we need to go after these uh, quote unquote massage parlors that are trafficking people and we need to shut them all down. And so they start collecting data on it and they present these data sets and they become public voices on it. And what they're advocating for is, is incredibly violent to the community of workers. It's dismissive of the workers and it, it really bolsters the state's argument for this sort of crackdown approach to quote unquote keeping people safe and, and regulating businesses, et cetera. Can we talk a little bit about some of those framings of, of sex workers and framings of massage workers that are tied up in this sort of larger nonprofit advocacy awareness schema? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also in talking about it, I think that I have to acknowledge that this sort of rooting out of exploitation that they use in this narrative doesn't just apply to massage businesses. It also applies to nail salons, also applies to farms, anywhere where like Asian migrant people are working, especially Asian migrant women, they use this sort of language, right? But the way that they do it is actually truly heinous. Um, so the numbers that you talk about, like you talk about how they're gathering this data um, in order to push for this idea that people are being exploited, a lot of these numbers on trafficking in general are overinflated. At the human trafficking courts here in New York, they ask people to like self-identify as a survivor of trafficking in order to access like basic social services. Like they're like, oh, you oh, want so they this- put an incentive in front of it. Yes. They're like, if you want this social service or if you want help from us, like identify as a trafficking survivor, a victim of trafficking, and we will provide these services for you. Right. They don't actually do that in the end either. Like they don't provide these services. Um, <laughs> Classic. Of course. It really like they want to they want to criminalize people and they want to arrest people. And also when they offer you these services, there are so many add ons. Right. Which is where you also see the failure because they sell it as rescuing people and they want to end the industry, which is also a part of the problem. Right. And not just like talking about criminalization, but because they think that this is bad. They think that sex work is a bad thing and that they should root it out and that they should get rid of it. So a part of these sort of agreements that they ask people to comply and they coerce people into to access certain services is they say, okay, like 
if you don't leave the work right now, stop right now, if you get arrested or get caught selling sex again, then the punishment is even worse. Right. Now you actually are going to go to jail and you're going to go to jail for an even longer amount of time than eventually go to prison and all of these things. And so they they don't don't ever actually provide these services to people, which is exact, honestly, exactly what you see in the story of Song Young, like that we continuously talk about over the years, because yeah, she was completely a part of, she was completely like, you see the system play out in her story and how she's criminalized and the way that she gets exploited by the police. And even then, right, when they say that they're going to help people, it's completely based in these racialized and gendered assumptions around Asian women and Asian men. They paint Asian women and Asian migrant women particularly as passive, helpless victims in need of rescue. And they paint Mm -hmm. Asian men as unscrupulous and predatory traffickers who come in to exploit people in their own community. Right? Right. But we know that it's so much more complicated than that. And that's not an all what's happening. And then you also cannot disconnect it from criminalization because I would probably be a little bit less mad at a lot of anti-trafficking groups if they didn't directly work with the police, but that's, (laughs) that's their bag, right? That's what they do. But like they, I would be less mad at them if they didn't directly work with the police, but that's what they do. And it's always attached to criminalization. You can't separate it. The people who want to say that they like do the anti-trafficking work or like that they want to help sex workers, but their platform isn't decriminalization and they're not talking about it in this way and they don't want to get rid of the police, then they're not with us at all. And they're totally trying to obscure what their true motives are or how they're working, which gets even more sort of insidious over time, which also kind of connects back to what we were talking about with like the language around hate crimes Mm -hmm. and terrorism, is that this whole narrative of keeping people safe and public safety is relatively new. The police did not used to try to sell themselves as keeping our communities safe. They were really public about hating particular communities and wanting to get rid of them and very like public about wanting to protect property, right? right? They used to be extremely public about this. So this is a relatively new conversation. And also the way that a lot of people talk about trafficking, the way people talk about sex work is also relatively new because they're trying to obscure what their motives are and the fact that they're trying to criminalize people and the fact that they're trying to kill people, the fact that they lead to deportations and even more violence on vulnerable communities. Right. No, exactly. And it's part of this sort of politics of elimination, right? It's like so many of these these groups and these charities, their their idea is to eradicate the conditions, right, that they see as causing the problem. And and within it, really, all these all these apparatuses are just providing such such a huge buff to the police it's giving them the legitimacy and it's giving them the the idea that it's giving people and culture and in this sort of like broader social processing of of the violence right it reinforces the idea that the police 
are the protector of the vulnerable, of victims, of minorities, which, as you're saying, like this is a rare instance of violence against massage workers not coming from the police directly, but coming from a member of the general public. So it's a great PR opportunity for the prison industrial complex, for police, for cities and states that are under heavy criticism for their spending on police departments, right? And so you really see the sort of protection of the vulnerable weaponized in a way that not only harms communities and upholds the status quo, but actually like undoes a lot of the difficult work that abolitionists have been doing across the board, pushing for, um, you know, something that actually represents a safety for our communities. Yeah, fully. I just, I am partially in disbelief about the way that people talk about it because I see so many people who are like in our circles who are like leftist aligned, so to speak, that completely use this narrative. They also are completely eliminationist about it. And a lot of people believe in like the abolition of the sex trades, which in and of itself is also a co-op of like abolition. Right. Right. What do you think? What do you think accounts for that? What, what do you think accounts for the perhaps unthinking or uncritical just adoption of that set of terms and analysis like on the left? I think that a lot of left you know, people who we would like to think that we should be aligned with have internal whorephobia that they are not reckoning with, um, that they are not reckoning with the the racialized and gendered assumptions that they make about Asian migrant women in this particular case. So the stereotypes that I talked to you about, like the assumptions that people make around like Asian migrant women being helpless and being exploited, when that's not really the case, it's like not people being abducted from their countries and brought here to be trafficked. It's more likely that there are a lot of circumstances surrounding it that make people want to seek out these opportunities that people tell them that, oh, if you do this, then you can get a job or there's like this opportunity for you to provide for your family or things like that. Right. Um, And they just don't want to like unpack any of that nuance. And also partially um, if I can like be a little bit more shady than I have like publicly about it. I also kind of, <laughs> <Nice>. just think, <laughs> I also just kind of think that a lot of people who are leftist aligned, um, especially those who aren't abolitionists, like don't like identify themselves as that or don't have those politics. Right. And they also mm-hmm. think that they can comment on whatever they want like comment on whatever thing I want without having any knowledge base on the issue itself, which this issue, especially when we talk about Atlanta, when we talk about the killings in Atlanta, it requires so much specificity. Mm-hmm. You really have to talk about it with this specificity around talking about how they're racialized and gendered, how the violence is racialized, gender-based violence that is also connected to the criminalization of sex work, also connected to the criminalization of immigrants and these like assumptions that are made about Asian migrant women. You have to be able to talk about all of these things. And you also have to have the knowledge base to be able to talk about abolition. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't have the range. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, I think that's it's it's significant, though, because, you know, the it's just like it occurs to me that like the in the wake of this sort of 
tragedy, the voice that the framing that comes out most clearly is the sort of anti-trafficking framing, this sort of like the framing that like the only the, the, the only solution to this is more securitization of the community and, and of sex work in particular. Um, and, and you even see it in the way that people uh, dance around the question of who the victims were and how to like identify right. them. And in the absence of that, it, it, any sort of like coherent politics around this on the left, that is what kind of framing emerges from this, right? Right. And I just think that a lot of people kind of, they want to talk about the moment. They want to talk about it for themselves, not even just like leftists, right? I think a lot of like neoliberal, liberal Asian people want to take up this issue as well. But you can't talk about it that way either, which is why we think that when you talk about it's separate when you talk about just race, right? People want to be like, oh, this is because they're Asian, right? Misses mm-hmm. the point. Even Asian women who come to talk about this issue recently that I keep seeing, I'm really sorry, but actually the violence that these women faced the and the reason why they were killed in Atlanta is not actually the same as random Asian women who are upper middle class in the United States and they like work in some like random industry that isn't criminalized, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like people aren't talking about it with the specificity that it needs and really doesn't like highlight all of the issues that are attached to it. Which also leads to all of the other conversations when people call like everything that we've talked about, right? When people call for more policing, when people buy into these trafficking narratives, it's because they entirely miss the point. And it's actually like, not like you actually can't really talk about this without talking about all of these other parts of it. And that's kind of why it's like, you kind of have to have the knowledge around sex work and how sex work is criminalized. You have to have the knowledge around how massage workers are criminalized in order to really talk about this issue or to just like really see what's happening and get to the roots of the violence to begin with. Right. I mean, I mean, I think it really comes down to this issue often of like who has access to power, who has the sort of access to the platform. I think, you know, from the like general left perspective, obviously there's a broad swath of people who feel like uncomfortable calling out the police because they say, well, police are workers too, whatever, without ever like, you know, having the, the, inkling that is to, so ridiculous i know yeah. it's like it's like wow not even the self-awareness to be like oh wait but also sex workers are workers what is the hierarchy of suffering among cops versus sex right. workers? <laughs> exactly right. no i'm just kidding but i yeah. mean it totally happens because of it being related to sex and so many people like i said are so Horphobic, and they don't want to reckon with that, and they think that they're they're like, oh, I'm not horphobic. I just think that like sex work is inherently misogynistic and patriarchal, which is also ridiculous, right? Because they the way that people talk about it is truly victim blaming, right? Mm-hmm. Is that they say that if they're sex workers or sex workers in general deserve this kind of violence, mm-hmm. and that they were asking for it simply because they were sex workers, and it's just like so ridiculous that you're not going to unpack that and reckon with that, right? Because one, sexual harassment and assault occurs in every industry, right? right? Men sexually harass and assault people in every industry, as women especially, right? In every industry. 
And we don't talk about every industry as if it's inherently misogynistic or patriarchal. And also when you say that, you're also just like so clearly victim blaming. You're so clearly victim blaming and you're also dehumanizing sex workers, dehumanizing so many people, which I don't think that even even if the women in Georgia did engage in sex work that we would ever find out about it or that we would ever talk about it. But if one of them did engage in sex work, if any of them engaged in sex work, would that have meant that they were deserving of the violence or deserving to be shamed publicly? No, no, they wouldn't have. And so that's like a part of the conversation that we're trying to have as well. Yeah. And I feel like this is that that negotiation, that public reproduction of stigma that happens in the aftermath of of violence like this is something you you also see, um, especially when you see parents killing their disabled children, how that is portrayed in the media has a huge impact. Right. You have the perception that there are certain groups because of their stigma that these kinds of people with these kinds of labels that that they can simply exist to the point to provoke violence. So you see this with the use of like a sex worker label to justify why, you know, there was violence done in Atlanta against these women that you see this used like, well, parents of this disabled child, they were, you know, very patient and they only could go so far and then they snapped there's, uh, you know, the justification of the the murderer in Atlanta of, you know, he was having a bad day. These were, you know, he was taking it out on an object of his frustration. And, you know, this that negotiation, I don't think people totally realize that in that that active public negotiation of sort of what what degree of violence was deserved in this circumstance that in and of itself is like an incredibly dehumanizing process and contributes to the amplification of the idea that that there is a reason to do harm against someone, that, that there is a reason to do this violence and that the police are justified in that as a sort of intermediary. And as a whole, you know, all, all it really does is reproduce white supremacy and, and maintain like the racial eugenic hierarchies that this country has been obsessed with maintaining for you know, hundreds of years at this point. Right. That push, like that pushback that we get when people are like, oh, well, we shouldn't call them sex workers because then like, oh, they like deserved it completely plays into criminalization. Right. Right. This is like very directly the way that people have replied when they say, oh, like, what do you make of the sort of assumptions that they're sex workers or that people say, you know, we actually shouldn't talk about sex work because Asian women are already racialized and gendered in a specific way as to be thought to be sex workers, right? So the pushback is like, people are like, oh, we have to separate as much as possible. No, Asian women aren't all sex workers. But this pushback only plays in more to criminalization, only buys in more to the criminalization and the stigmatization of sex workers that lead to people dying. Right, exactly. I mean, I think this is something that is a point that we can't make strongly enough, really, which is that that those aspersions that are cast by, you know, people who are like what, like whether they're like liberals or leftists or whatever, or like, yeah, regardless of their politics, really. Um, and I think often by white, like white people, regardless Mm -hmm. of their politics, like those aspersions that are cast about this, it just completely rhymes with 
everything that has been said in defense of the shooter by the police, basically like, Oh, he had a bad day. Like he was big into religion or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he wanted to remove this like sinful outlet or something like whatever, whatever bullshit story that they're, that they've been spinning about it. Just a religious zealot who took it a little too far. Bless his heart. (laughs) Right. No, but I mean, I think that I, I, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I guess I don't, I don't think that people realize they're basically saying the same thing, except for just it like slick, you know, one or two degrees away. I mean, I think some people, some people don't fully realize it and don't really make that connection, right? I completely understand people who say that, oh, well, like, this is the stereotype. So like, we should not buy into the stereotype. But also there are realities here, right? About the way Mm -hmm. that Asian migrant women, massage workers are racialized and gendered and also how deeply expansive the criminalization of sex work is and how it affects people, right? And naming that is very different than just like buying into a stereotype and also like talking about the realities is not the same as buying into a stereotype. So I think that some people have really good intentions behind where they are with it. But also it's even more, I mean, I'm just like voicing frustrations here, like using your podcast to voice my frustrations. Please. But like, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, even more annoying when people who claim to be well studied and claim to be on the same side and that they also want the liberation of all our peoples who like parrot these talking points, right? And just use a little bit of a better language. Um, Mm -hmm. it's all harmful. It's harmful all the same, but y'all are just a little bit more annoying. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I guess I I think that's kind of what the, thank you. That's a much, I think better, I think that's a much better articulated version of what I was trying to say. Cause I guess I didn't really mean to make it so much about like the intention of people. Cause that's, that's also something that can just be applied as a brush to sort of wash it to like, uh, to excuse, yeah, to minimize and excuse away, uh, people, you know, perpetuating this shit. Yeah. I mean, well-meaning harm is still harm we definitely understand a lot especially as we've talked about it right all of the impulses that people have and the way that people react to things and are trying to be like very kind about it but some people i'm just like y'all are just like actively choosing to be obtuse (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i mean i i think we talked about this a lot actually in both our episodes that we had Dean Spade on. And I think Dean writes on this very well, that there's this sort of like incentivization that the state engineers through policy architecture, through the reproduction of ideas, through media and and culture, that there is this sort of hierarchy, but that there is also like competition for spots on that hierarchy. And that there is, you know, mm-hmm. that if one group gets uh, rights, another group loses out. And, and you can't have a conversation about the dynamics of power that are actually in play in something like what happened last week with this mass murder without addressing a more realistic understanding of how power works and and how all of these things come together to create a specific circumstance that the state is not being held accountable for creating. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, like the circumstance was created by the state. The state creates gun control laws. The state creates labor laws. The state controls the conditions of employment, the conditions of policing, right? This is a, this is a, a moment of 
that should be a, a call for accountability and auditing the functions of the state that contributed to this circumstance, right? And that is absolutely not what happens when no. this kind of mass violence happens because it becomes this individuated uh, experience of the violence. People, um, the media portrays it as this sort of uh, either part of a phenomenon or makes meaning of it in these like, you know, the crime wave methodology that we've talked about. And it completely spirals out of hand, you know, and, and I think we need to have a much more complex conversation about state power when something like this happens. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's also why, like, we should push back on some of this language that's used by the state, especially around hate crimes, because it does individuate what happened instead of addressing that it's rooted in the state. It's rooted in the white supremacist violence that the state does. like the way that the state racializes and genders people. And people just don't really want to unpack that. Also, people are really unwilling to also reckon with our, our legacy of U.S. imperialism and why yeah. migrant workers even come here. There are just a lot of things that people are not willing to unpack at the moment. And it feels really difficult. I mean, yeah, I mean, actually, to that to that point, I wonder if you have any thoughts actually specifically on something that was raised not just recently but actually like last year as mm -hmm. the u.s kind of started to like grapple with COVID 19 which is the uh the COVID 19 hate crimes act which was proposed and which since the events of atlanta actually um biden just but the biden administration actually just uh issued a statement within the last week at least saying uh, I urge Congress to swiftly pass the COVID-19 crime, Hate Crimes Act, which would expedite the federal government's response to the rise of hate crimes exacerbated during the pandemic. The text of the bill, of which basically, I think, applies broad levity to interpret, uh, to essentially like add anything sort of like related to, I don't, I'm not even sure, like perceived threat of covid transmission yeah it's very to, very open-ended right so i wonder i mean i would just wonder if you've been following this at all or if you're if, if you have any like particular thoughts about i mean i think that the piece of legislation is bad um <laughs> i think like, we would to agree start with, with like <laughs> those yeah. are my like initial thoughts on the like legislation right um i also think that the way that the it's talked about is connected to a lot of different things about like the criminalization of illness um, yeah. and like public health. And I hate the way that people tend like I'm not going to act like anti-Asian violence hasn't risen since COVID-19, right? Like people right. aren't being emboldened. But the way that people talk about it makes it almost as if like, oh, it just like happened because of COVID-19 because of Trump and his rhetoric. And it didn't come out of nowhere. It's always happened. It's always existed. And partially, I think that the state pushes for things like this and pushes this narrative because then they don't have to acknowledge the state's role and how the violence has existed for a really long time and that they themselves are agents of violence and are people who push for the violence. Mm -hmm. 
Totally. I mean, Joe Biden, he and the Democratic Party have been relying on racist, xenophobic portrayals of China as a sort of political carrot and stick. As like a, a thing to fear monger against, like China's going to eat our lunch or something. Right. Just, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so you sort of have this ability also for them to launder their uh, reputations, to present this like new unified sort of uh, anti-racist uh, idea of the Democratic Party, which really does not reflect um, any of its current policy goals in a way. And, and, and it worries me because with Joe Biden, who is, you know, got this great legacy of, you know, it's really just a dollop of cream on top of an already ex- <laughs> consistently uh, carceral record. It's right? a loaded baked potato of the prison industrial <laughs> complex when it comes to Joe Biden. He's just like he, you know, he has ushered through and championed through the development of so many of these sort of trends of criminality, right? And we're running into, I think, some dangerous policy territory where where you can use hate as a concept to really um, enforce some dangerous and harmful security practices and just divert money to the police, which is really not in the interest of anyone's well-being, anyone's safety or, or, or public health. And I mean, one of the things also that that I know you wanted to talk about and you haven't had a chance to talk about this much this week is sort of the, the angle that disability brings in here as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... Like there's so many parts of it that I feel like we haven't been able to talk about very publicly because, I mean, it just feels like a lot of talking around the basics of the issue, but there are so many things attached to it. And specifically also talking about the COVID-19 hate crime bill, which I like brought up is that this plays into so much history around the criminalization of illness and the narratives around public health, which also are so intimately connected to sex work Mm -hmm. and the sex trades and also connected to Asian migrants, right? This is why so this like all of this narrative is so rooted in history, right? This would not be the first time in history that we've seen Asian migrant women be framed as bearers of disease and especially those who are connected to the sex trades right right who people think either they do engage in sex work or either there's an assumption that they engage in sex work or that they are connected to it right this would also not be the first time that people talk about sex workers as bearers of disease and as if like that's a bad thing right and using public health narratives to criminalize people or drive people further underground And I just, I really wish that we could talk about it more in general, right? Like just in general, talk about it more because people really only want to talk about very specific parts around COVID-19 and like anti-Asian violence without like looking at all of these different parts that come to play in it. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I think this is one of those things which much like a lot of what we've been talking about just continually, like the more you dig in, to it just seems like uh so much of the like obviously the um the the sort of a technical apparatus built around the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. and how and how like uh carcerality has evolved but a lot of the sort of like cultural and moral framework or whatever you know quote-unquote moral uh framework 
I feel like really has barely it, it almost just feels like it has barely even evolved since the like 19th century as we were as we've been kind of talking about <laughs> yeah, like just the taking new in, forms there's a shapeshifter like as uh like in in the 19th century to your to your point about casting Asian people or, or immigrants um especially and especially women as like carriers of disease I mean like you had the I guess what would be called public health professionals now or <laughs> uh or or just like in general like health professionals prior to even the larger like arrivals of uh, Asian immigrants to the United States, like prior to even that in like the 1830s, you had them like had public health people basically making up um, saying that like Asian women carried like a rare form of syphilis, which was like especially dangerous or something like that. I mean, these are, I guess, yeah, I guess my my point is that it just seems, it it almost seems like all of these made up fear mongering myths like just just live in us or something just like live throughout like throughout still uh unchallenged and like unreconstructed i mean i think that like it's that not just like the fear mongering but the way that they'll use the narratives to fear monger and then still continue to like not provide people with social services (laughs) and to criminalize people because okay you're like Asian migrant women are carriers of disease. Asian sex workers are carriers of disease. Okay, like, okay, like, sure, sure. Like, let's, like, go with that for a second. (laughs) And you're still not going to, like, provide vaccines for people, right? Right. Like, right. Give them health (laughs) care. Exactly. You're not going to, like, give them health care. Like, that's not something that you're going to do. And you're not, like, specifically around vaccines, right? Like, so many people who are, like, Asian migrant massage workers, especially the undocumented folks, right, who are criminalized for their work, who are criminalized for being undocumented immigrants, can't get the vaccine. Or, like, there are huge barriers around it. There are language barriers. There are, like, documentation barriers. And they're not helping people either. So you're going to stoke the flames, use these narratives, and then also not do anything about it. No, exactly. And and in that, you sort of individuate it, too, because it's like the problem then doesn't become like the lack of access to health care or the lack of access to, you know, accessible vaccine sites. It becomes, you know, well, these people failed to get their documentation that they needed to access the things that would make them, you know, better or whatever. And it's it's it is part of this sort of broader political project that we we have here in order to avoid accountability and avoid responsibility um, for all sorts well, and of to uh, construct it will and to construct who is like the us of right. society or whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. And it's all about sort of building borders around the allocation of resources and and, and ultimately like the conversation that that is that we're having right now is one to just basically say like hold up like in the aftermath of this, in this like politics of processing, like where are we allocating resources right now? Like, can we be real about that for a second? Because we're not allocating it to the people who are the so victimized here, right? We're allocating it to the state and that's really it. And and it's similar to the conversation you're seeing about um, what's going on in Evanston, Illinois, where you have the news reporting, like Evanston is giving reparations, (laughs) And isn't this amazing? They're going to give out $10 million over 10 years. And you look at the text of it and it's like, basically, they're giving out like mortgages. Yeah. Right. And it's being sold as this reparations project. That's the first of its kind. And it's like, well, that's norm setting. That is setting the standard of reparations at a program that basically cycles money from the state into banks. And yes, it might help some people get housing, but... $10 million over 10 years is really not that much money. 
you know? No, no. I, th- I think I think the thing where where this particular episode has has a lot in common with these with other things that we've we've talked about in in other you know moments in in this podcast, like is that in the absence of some sort of like some sort of like other vision of like what what policy would look like the 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 status quo the thing the thing that's easiest to sort of like project a solution onto is the i mean it is the the prison industrial complex and it's sort of like attendant uh parts of the social welfare state as well that sort of go hand in hand with that um and i think that that's like that i think is what is most frustrating for me is the left's inability to like capture that problem and 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 actually reckon with it or seemingly uh, recognize it in a lot of and, and yeah even even recognize even recognize like the the way <laughs> the way that you can be instrumentalized without even knowing it right like like there's of course like a hegemonic project here that you know people in the state are part of and that uh some uh public figures outside of the state in like elite civil society organizations are a part of but i think a lot of people get trapped into this because they're just, you know, either, you know, they're like journalists trying to tell a story or, you know, whatever. But they're in in not having a critical apparatus to deal with it. Then they end up just unwittingly playing the role of being the repeater. It is really it's like I think so often the wrong questions are asked. Right. Like in a moment like now, it's important to have conversations about what we can actually do to like improve things for people who are you know, at the intersection of state violence. Right. And that's that's ultimately not the conversation that's happening publicly. It's it's a selling of awareness. It's something that really, you know, ignores and erases the people actually at the center of this. And one that, you know, as you're saying, saying, Evie, it's like completely dismissive and minimizing of any like nuance or intersectionality, which is like really, really important here. I mean, it's just such a complicated issue. And I I mean, like, and I don't say complicated as to be like, oh, it's really difficult to understand because I actually don't think that it is. But that like, there's so many parts to it, right? And the people that we're talking about are at the intersection of so many different identities that are criminalized and racialized in really specific ways. And I think that a lot of people don't want to hold that nuance and also don't want to hold that nuance in talking about the solutions, so to speak, right? Is that I've had a lot of people ask me if I like defended certain solutions or other solutions to it or like the way that people have been reacting to the violence in different ways. And I just don't think that it's that simple and also that people aren't really looking to the right solutions either because they want something very immediate and they Mm -hmm. want something that's like going to answer for something, right? So a lot of people will ask me, oh, how important do you think that health services, mental health services are to sex workers and massage workers, Asian migrant women, right? Which it's obviously important. That is something that we (laughs) want to be able to provide that's something that should be provided, but also cannot overstate how carceral certain health services can be and certain right. institutions can be, right? Yeah. So if your immediate reaction is, oh, actually, okay, like all of these people are telling us we shouldn't go to the police, let's instead fund the hospitals, let's instead fund mental health institutions. Those are also carceral. They also institutionalize people all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Can just as easily institutionalize people. And also these are communities that are consistent 
consistently always pathologized, right? And right. are always seen in really specific ways and they're not getting the help that they need, right? So the solution is not so easy. And then people are also like, oh, okay, if you don't believe in the police, like, do you think, like, Eves, do you think that we should have community defense? Should we arm people? Should we have community patrols? The answer is no, by the way. I don't think that we should. I have no problem if people want to get armed, but also, like, community patrols, community defense, arming people and like having people do the surveillance is also still surveillance is right, also still right. policing. Yeah. Do the um, state's work for right? it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that people really want to make it easy and want to have the solutions and they want to be like, oh, okay, well, like if we just like take it out of the hands of the state or if we just like don't give it to PD and ICE specifically, that we're going to solve right. the issue. And it's just not true or accurate. And you're not able to like hold everything that's like here and how it affects people. Because realistically, right, when we're talking about it, massage workers want really basic things right now. And people are trying to say all of this and like, they're like, oh, is this the solution? And especially when I just like talked about patrolling and community defense, I'm like, you're still subjecting people to surveillance. You're still subjecting people to policing. Right. And and we cannot, we can't be moving in this way. Like this can't possibly be the way that it's going to go down. No, exactly. I mean, what what are some of the things that the community of massage workers are actually asking for? Because I think it might be nice to quickly, before, sort of as a last topic, like we could contrast that with the the all of the hate crime legislation that we've discussed over the past Especially hour. Especially because that's so. certainly not anything that has even been entertained, and I think Absolutely. most, uh, almost yeah. all press coverage. Yeah, of this, basically. Like, Exactly. Well, like the massage workers, which you can read it in our statement, right? But like massage workers want like protections in their work. They want to be able to safely do their work. They give back to the community and they want the community to give back to them, right? They uphold whole economies. They support families. They support themselves. And they want people to be able to support them and to be able to do their work safely, right? And these are very basic things. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the demands that are coming out of massage workers. They want to not be policed. They want to not be surveilled for doing their work. You know, people just want to be able to survive and want to be able to live their lives without feeling like they have to they're subject to violence and danger every day. And that also the people in their very own community aren't going to be there for them. Right. And mm -hmm. when I say that, I think that the community should step up, right. That they should do something. They should support people. I don't actually mean that like you should like become a patrol in the community. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. Like I think that people should do mutual aid, that people should check on their neighbors, that people should care about people. Right. And also this, means like, no, you shouldn't call the police on your massage right. business neighbor. No, I mean, I think it's important to like to remind people that it's good to withhold judgment when the judgment parameters are based on, you know, pathology or uh, labels dictated by the state. Right. I mean, it's uh, how are we holding people accountable? What is the accountability that we're holding them to? And are we actually responding to the you know, if you're if you want to claim that you're like trying to organize from a left perspective um, to support workers, then maybe just ask what those workers that need supporting are asking for before you make a decision about which state apparatus should you know, be funded to protect <laughs> yeah. them. Or at the know very know least, I mean? embrace questioning your inbuilt biases. <laughs> There are just a lot of like questions around it that I don't know that people are willing to ask themselves about it also because it's not easy. And at any time abolition um, is a part of the conversation, I feel that people really want you to just be like, oh, yes, if we do this thing, it'll solve it. 
right? But like nothing you do, nothing we can do is going to prevent every harm in the world. And I can't promise to you that if we do this thing, that it's going to solve all of our issues. But what I do know is that like what we're doing right now isn't working. And like what we're (laughs) like, and that policing for sure is not working, right? That PD and ICE and all of this is not helping people. It causes more violence. And that's enough reason to get rid of it. That's enough reason to not do some of these things. But people don't want to hear that, right? They want you to offer very immediate solutions and want to promise that it's going to work and that it's going to help people. And all I can say is that like, all I know is that it's certain. this is certainly not helping people and it's making <laughs> people's lives worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like pretty, it, it seems pretty clear, especially when it's all laid out like this, that for like, for all the people might want to ask those things, one thing that can be very, very clearly demonstrated is that absolutely the wrong response is to look at events like this and then decide I'm going to, you know, put more resources like funding, uh, et cetera, into police who perpetuate violence. You know, it's like, a, it's, a, it's absurd as like, invading Iraq after 9-11 or something like that you know what I mean it's just like like you just turn around and just do something completely unrelated basically that just makes everything worse (laughs) Evie thank you for coming today it's been so nice to have you on the show finally long overdue (laughs) yeah definitely no this is this is great thank you for coming yeah Um, is there is there anything else you want to plug by the way even just I think we'll put a link to the statement from Red Canary Song. Yeah, Red Canary Song. If you want to uplift like other orgs who are also doing the work, so like Massage Parlor Outreach Project in Seattle, Butterfly in Toronto, Swan Vancouver. Also, Scarlet Cha-Cha is currently asking for global solidarity. They're a sex worker group in South Korea, the only sex worker group in South Korea. And they're currently asking for global solidarity because a lot of orgs, as you can imagine, overseas have not seen the like influx in donations that we have. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So follow Eve at Eve's in the Moon on Twitter. And Eve's, thank you for coming. Really appreciate it again. And yeah, listeners, truly, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for, for holding the space. Well, anytime. You're always welcome. Um, and, uh, Yeah, as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Thank <laughs> you. 